this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Five o'clock over here and 8 p.m. on the East Coast. I um, think we might as well get started. So uh, I'm Anna Olds. I'm an I6 resident uh, on research at the University of Southern California. I'm also the vice president of the TSRA. Um, I've been on the executive board for a little over two years now. Um, this is uh, an infographic we, we put together. Um, this is a collaboration uh, wellness series of webinars um, between the TSRA and the TSDA. And the goal is to come up with a series of webinars that offer resources, um, tangible resources for residents, fellows, and also early career attendings and late career attendings um, on various wellness topics. And these are kind of the pillars of, of wellness that Dr. Erkman and I um, have come up with from the TSDA and TSRA standpoint um, to focus our webinars on various pillars. Um, so I will let Dr. Erkman also introduce herself from the TSDA perspective. Welcome everybody. Um, my name is Sherry Erkman. I'm a thoracic surgeon at Temple. And I'm very pleased to share this collaborative work between the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association and the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association to advance a curriculum that is not often taught within our traditional medical training. And the curriculum is uh, skills and knowledge of how to keep yourself well throughout your career. And so previously we had a session on um, complications and we have this session now on finance, personal finances. So I would like to uh, go ahead and get the rest of our group started and introduced. So uh, each of us will do a one-liner, starting with Dr. Sephorleo. Yeah, well, who I am really doesn't matter, but I'm a thoracic surgeon at NYU. I also was an executive VP and vice dean and chief operating officer uh, here for five years. I don't have that role now, fortunately. Uh, but my interest in finance is I ran my own business when I was in college and even through medical school and have an LLC and um, I got my MBA and I've always been interested in the business world. And I think it's something we have to do a much better job with training. We can teach anybody how to do a robotic right up below, but not what a 529 is or a 412i and, and a backdoor Roth. And they need to know that. Dr. And my name is Jeff Pratt. I'm based out of Portland, Oregon. I'm a financial advisor for the firm Finity Group. We specialize in working with medical professionals as a firm all around the country. And from a standpoint of my interest in finance, been around it my entire life. Uh, growing up, my dad and brother have backgrounds as CPAs and was fortunate enough to have them as resources growing up all through college years and upon graduation, continuing their mentorship into the role that I have now and realizing that specifically in the medical community, as Dr. Serfolio mentioned, not a lot of education is provided out there. 
So saw that need. And with the background that I was able to be granted just growing up, realized that I have the opportunity to educate more people to ensure that they can feel secure in their own financial futures going forward. However, they may view that for themselves. It's different for everybody. Yeah, Dr. Coyne. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. So I'm Garrett Coyne. I'm the immediate past president, thank goodness, of the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association. Uh, I'm currently finishing up my congenital heart surgery fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and currently negotiating my first uh, job opportunities. So fun times. Um, my, my interest and background in finance, I come as a first-generation college student not having a clue about anything finance-related and having to kind of learn it all on my own. So uh, I, I want to help people not have to start off from zero. And as Dr. Sofolio mentioned, and this might be a recurring theme, um, I also uh, have launched two businesses while I was a resident, two medical device startups. So uh, obviously, finance becomes very important when doing those sorts of activities. So, uh, and, and we might be digressing, but we should talk to Garrett and make sure he is leveraging everything, get as much money as he can, because nobody teaches you that. <laughs> no one teaches you anything. That's All right. your leverage is <laughs> now. The second you sign, you got Jack. You're done. <laughs> you got <Go> it. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Kane. Hi, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm a congenital heart surgeon as well. And, um, you know, finances just part of life and I think it's important to learn about it and do it well. Um, I've managed, you know, a society with the Women and Drafted Society uh, before and I have an LLC, but mo mostly I just think it's important in life. Everybody has finances they have to deal with. And Tyler? Yeah, I'm Tyler Rivetti and work with Rivetti Financial. We're a financial advisory firm based out of Southern California. And I'm the second generation, so our, our history goes back, I just want to say about 45 years. Um, usually I tell everybody that I have to specify that I'm the second generation because everyone looks at me with you know, glass eyes. But in the second generation, we've handled everything from disability insurance, the financial planning, the investment management. Um, we work with a lot of residents and we have um, handled the disability insurance programs uh, for several hospitals in Southern California that's specifically provided to the residents during the training. Um, so we're very familiar with what the residents have to deal with. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. Um, for the people who have joined, uh, if you have questions, you can use the Q&A. We'll be checking that throughout the chat. Um, so feel free to ask any questions and uh, we will ask them to the panelists. So we'll get started with our first question. Um, I think we'll start with Dr. Serfolio. Um, What advice would you give trainees about investing for the future in terms of when should we start? How do we start? So you should have started yesterday. And if you didn't, it's okay. And the key thing is to have a team. Uh, it's just like your operating room uh, or it's just like your family. And it's about the team. You really need, you know, financial consultants. In, my, in all of our cases, it's a tax attorney. It's a financial consultant. Uh, it's someone that's gonna help you with estate planning and all, and all of those things that are wrapped around it. And really, um, even a lawyer as well. So I think with those three pieces on your team, it goes. And then the biggest thing I tell the residents are you need to save. And some of the advisors may disagree, but I say 20% of your money after taxes. I know that 10% after taxes and 20% a gross rule, but I think doctors will do exactly what you tell them. 
And if they maximize their retirement and the matching, which is crazy that people don't, right? And they don't take advantage of 529 plans the day after their first child's born and they don't leverage their debt correctly. Uh, and then use mortgages. You know, doctors hate to be in debt, but it's silly to take all your money and buy a house. You should use that money intelligently. And what's different, you know, it's unique for each person. So you really need a team to say what is ideal for you. But my main point is you can never start early enough. And if you didn't start and you're 50, you can start tomorrow. It's okay. But you need to really have wrapped around a team with a lawyer, uh, a tax consultant, and a financial advisor, planner. And with those people on your team, you'll do what's best for you. And it's something you should check. I do it every two weeks. Uh, it's not something you just check in every quarter. It's not like a retirement fund. So you got to check in with those people that are on your team more frequently than you think. And maybe that's obsessive, but at least once a quarter. That's my two cents. Thank you. And I'm thinking, um, Jeff, if you could give us a little bit more information about how to start. Let's say that we are people who have zero to just a very beginning of a financial plan, some basic principles learned on the fly from family members, like you said. So how do you do that first? Once you build your team, how do you create the first budget and the first long-term plan? Very good question. I think as a starting point, you're going to want to create a balance sheet, you know, a net worth statement, figure out what's in our checking and savings, what investment accounts do I have, whether that's personal things with you know, Robinhood apps on our phone, retirement accounts through work, stuff that maybe previous family members started for you. What are, do we own any assets, home, cars, jewelry, collectibles? Just figure out what those assets are, subtract out the liabilities. Anybody that's in training, typically are going to start out with a negative net worth. Not exciting to look at by any means whatsoever. We all know that uh, for, for maybe a few who were able to get out without any student loans, starting out with a positive net worth, power to you. But we just got to start out with that balance sheet. And it's not fun to look at the liabilities, get the credit cards in there, get the student loans in there, get the mortgage in there. You got to have a starting point. So get that balance sheet created and then also look at a personal income statement. So, you know, look at what, okay, what's my salary going to be? What's my net take home pay after taxes and my deductions come out? What gets deposited in my checking account on a regular basis, depending on where you're at in your training years earlier, finishing or, you know, in your attending role at this point, take a few months, three to six months, look back at credit cards and bank statements on spending habits, start categorizing things and then figure out where's my money going relative to what's getting deposited. From there, you've got your groundwork laid as far as my balance sheet, my income statement to determine what do I have to play with or where do I need to focus? I would agree with you, Dr. Serfolio, that, hey, start yesterday, but be aware of opportunity cost. Because if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've got $10,000 in 30% interest credit cards, maybe we need to address that first. But that is something that is very individualized. Everybody's got different risk profiles and tolerances. So I'd very much agree that you want to build that team of folks that is going to be consistent with listening to you and putting what you want first. Because I have interacted with many people who have that credit card balance. And they say, Jeff, I'm not worried about it. I want to do the investments. And then let's go ahead and do that. And we can adjust the other parts later. It doesn't need to be an exact pecking order of you know, what I think is right. 
but balance sheet income statement and prioritizing from there is going to be the starting point in my opinion and i would just add that that call is not made in a vacuum if you have a significant other at home and you're sharing that they have to be part of it and if you have children i don't care if they're five they need to be part of it they can start learning fiscal responsibility as early the earlier you do the better and even have multiple uh, strategies for them but it's a family thing anyone who's spending your money is everyone's money. So they all got to be in it together. You're all in the same boat. We do have one uh, related question from the Q&A. Um, there is a trainee that says, I'm torn between a fee-only financial advisor and something more long-term. Once you have a plan in place, is it mostly set it and forget it? What active management do I really need? So maybe Tyler can comment on that. Yeah, when it comes to having your money managed, uh, especially if you're going to have somebody else do it, Personally, I'm not a fan of active management, meaning you have somebody who is buying and selling, um, trying to beat the stock market. All they're going to ultimately do, rack up expenses. Um, a lot of places, depending on where you have your account set up, there might be a small fee to buy and sell a stock or a mutual fund, an ETF. So every time you have somebody buying and selling an investment for you, you're racking up a fee. Uh, and then if you have actively managed mutual funds, there's a couple of things that go with that. One, you're probably paying your financial advisor too high of a fee to buy and sell all of these investments and mutual funds, stocks, bonds, whatever the case. And then if they're investing your money into an actively managed mutual fund, you then have to pay the manager of that mutual fund through the money you have invested. So you're ultimately need to look at all of the fees, the trading fees, your advisor fee, and the fees that go all the way down to the mutual funds that you're invested in. Uh, personally, I'm more of a fan of passive investments, which is going to be index funds, if that rings a bell for anybody. Uh, you can get the costs of those investments down to practically a negligible standpoint. Uh, you know, 0.04% of what you're invested versus 0.5% or 1% that you're losing every single year just to be invested in that fund, which History has shown that actively managed investments over time are just going to underperform the market. They might have a good stretch of 10 years, and then the next 20 years they're underperforming if these, these actively managed funds even last that long. Um, if you look at the history, a lot of them will even close down and that fund's not even around anymore. Now you got to go find another actively managed mutual fund to invest in, which, you know, again, history is repeating itself. It's just going to underperform the market. So focus on what you really can control, and that's going to be your expenses, tax efficiency, things like that. Um, you want to make sure you're keeping those costs down over time. I want to I want to make a cut, you know, just as uh, the, the, the actual trainee on the panel here. Um, for those of you who all of this sounds like gobbledygook to right now, that's A, that's okay. You have time to figure it out. B, try to start simple, right? If, if you're just starting out and you got, you have nothing except you have a paycheck and maybe a budget, you know, prioritize and, and, and start down that path. So I don't know, to me, that means protect yourself. So disability insurance, some sort of life insurance policy, if you're single and it's just you and you, maybe you got a hundred thousand dollars in private loan debt, 
okay, that's all you have to cover with life insurance. If you have a family and you got kids, that's a different conversation, but you have to protect yourself first. And then you can start talking, okay, what's the first thing I need to invest in? Well, I, you know, work's given me 4% match on my, my 403B or my 401k. We're going to go into that, you know, there will come a time as you progress and maybe you do some moonlighting and maybe you get your first job where you can talk about mutual funds. You can talk about active versus passive private investments. You know, all, all, you know, all of us at this point probably have some of those things, but when you're first starting out, you don't need all of that. You, you don't need four people you're paying to manage your finances. You, you, you can start out simple. And I think we're going to talk more about how to do that, but don't, don't make it overwhelming at the beginning. And Garrett, I would say you don't need the fancy couch and the downstairs extra living room either. Correct. That's your retirement. Yeah. Number one, that's yeah. inexcusable. I don't care if you're making 60 grand a year, you got to put as yeah. much away in your retirement, maximize it and make yeah. sure that you're matching it. That's going to sit and grow. That's got to be something you just got to say to the family. This is put aside and taken out of the paycheck to start, I think. Yeah. Actually, that's a good lead in, um, Dr. Scalio. You know, I think this is really for kind of the first, when you first graduate, you know, and you're getting your first job. I call it the 10% rule, but it's where basically you look at your income post taxes, right? At your take home the day you're finishing your training and your take home money if your first paycheck is a uh, employed physician and 10% you can spend for your fund, whatever you want to spend it on. 90% of the extra bump up needs to be going towards making, like you said, making an emergency fund, making, uh, making sure you have your insurance to cover for your family or yourself make sure you have your disability, like all of those things is the first steps. And honestly, if you do that for the first two or three years, you'll be amazed how far that goes. Just yeah. barely go up on your spending in that first two or three years. And, um, and you can really get yourself in a better spot. Avoid, avoid the big house, avoid being house rich and, and wallet poor, avoid the brand new car. Worst investment in the world is a car. Don't buy a brand new car. Uh, you're going to buy a car, you have it for 15 years and run it into the ground. Be really smart and sock it away early as much as you can. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I, I see time and time again, and Jeff, I don't know if you see this too, doctors right out of residency, they're looking straight for those phys- physician mortgage loans, 0% down, they're maxing out the biggest house, they're rolling up in their brand new BMW. Uh, I, I get it. You have this money, you want to enjoy it. After everything you've been through, if you can keep living exactly how you've been living for several more years and just sock away all that extra money, um, granted, you're getting such a later start than the majority of the population who start working when they're, you know, 21, 22, um, you know, you're in school for, you know, 30 years. So you need to keep your expenses down, not just inflate your expenses as your income inflates. We're just trying to build this checklist of um, of planning. And so Dr. Serfolio said 20% or roughly for retirement. And um, Dr. Coyne, you were saying that you need to do disability insurance, right? And I heard Dr. Kane say emergency fund. 
how how much of emergency fund uh, would you would you advise? And to anyone else on the panel, if there's anything else we need for just that want, check, just want to clarify. I said the retirement you maximize that doesn't even count. So you have to take every penny out you get for retirement maximum amount, which changes each year a little bit, and get matched. And then your gross income, twenty percent of that, after you have funded your retirement, you need to put in the savings account and live on the remaining eighty. That's that is your your annual gross, not before that's before taxes. That needs to be put away, and you have to have that fiscal restraint early and really tighten the screws the first five to seven years. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, I think you have to understand the why behind your money decisions, right? Because if you don't have a goal and you don't understand why you're doing this, it gets really hard to be disciplined. Um, and so, and it's hard to achieve your goals. So I think that really begs the question of what are your goals in life? And, you know, it's a tough question to answer necessarily, but I mean, you can't start planning soon enough and yeah. um, keeping it simple so that you're successful may be the right way to go right at the beginning. But, you know, over time, I think it's make intentional goals, moderate your lifestyle, build an emergency fund, maybe even do a backwards budget, right? Like, yeah. okay, here's the goal, what I want to have. Mm -hmm. and this is, okay, this is yeah. how I get there. No, I think that's a good idea. And, and, you know, at, you know, once again, from the front end of this, as a resident, you, you know, depending on you're, you know, you're stuck, you're, you're somewhere for five to seven years. And, and that somewhere may very well be a high cost of living area like New York City. Um, if you're a family of four living on a resident salary in New York City, you're not going to, let, let's face it, you're not saving 20%, but you can get disability. You can get your life insurance. You can set up a small, you're not going to be able to save, you know, your six months worth of emergency fund, but you can set up a, an emergency fund in a high yield savings account and, and, and you can, and you can get your match, right? That's money on the table. So, so, you know, start easy. And then, you know, every year you get a raise, maybe that raise goes into the savings account and helps build the fund up. You know, you're used to living on one, one amount of money. You know, you get a couple extra thousand dollars a year. Well, you know, do you need all of that? Probably not. It, it, you know, you just put it into this, this, this financial structure you're building up over time. And Dr. Erkman on the emergency reserve amount, typically you're going to hear three to six months of fixed expenses as a common target. So if somebody says, hey, I need $3,000 a month to get by, nine to 18,000 is a pretty common target. And that you know, multiplication is gonna change based on individual needs. Certain situations can warrant you know, less or more, but three to six months is common, I would say. And, and I would argue, and, and, and this might be a little controversial, but, but as a resident, you're actually relatively protected in your employment compared to when you're even in attending right? You're matched into a residency on standard contracts. You know, you have your leave, you have, as long as you have disability, you know, you're fairly well protected. They're not just going to fire you out of the blue. They can't, you know, that's not going to happen. So, so, so maybe you're only holding three months in reserve instead of six months and operationalizing some of that extra income, you know, to, to feed the three kids at home while you live in LA or something. 
So just to kind of continue the conversation of building a team, we had started out with that um, discussion. So Dr. Sfolio, you mentioned a lawyer, a tax, you mentioned a tax lawyer, a financial advisor, an investment manager. What at a resident standpoint, where should people start with that? And maybe Tyler or Jeff can comment on that. And also, can you comment on what is the difference between a financial advisor and investment manager, all of those different names that you see um, kind of all over the internet? I'll give you my two cents. I have a wonderful man at Wells Fargo named Ed, Ed, Ed Acosta. And you're just, there. Edgar is one of the most incredible people in the world. He's part of the family. So when my kids need problems with driver's license, he helps. When uh, there's a problem at a home that I owned in Florida or Birmingham, he helps. That is a big difference as he is a financial advisor is not part of my family. That's different than an investment manager. Anyone can get someone can help invest their money, but really someone that becomes part of your family who you trust with everything, uh, your trusts, your LLCs, any company spinoff, stocks, dividends, estate planning, all of it. So I feel strongly that you want to get someone you trust. And I will tell you, I went through seven of them before I found Edgar Acosta at Wells Fargo. Uh, and it has to be what's right for you. Uh, so I think I feel very strongly about that. And then as you grow, you might not need a, an attorney or a tax consultant in the beginning because you're not doing backdoor Roths or other things early on. I get that. But that will be set up and maybe Tyler and others can talk all of the companies will offer that once you get a certain amount of money, actually a gratis is part of it. But I think it's a constant discussion of where you're going to be and you need to be nimble. Your thoughts are going to change. And so you need to have these conversations as your health issues come, family issues change, kids are getting recruited or drafted and getting scholarships or whatever it is. They're part of the family and they have to be specific for you. So I think that's the thing. Find someone you really trust and a big firm is going to give you all the things that come with it and have constant conversations. I'm amazed that the doctors, you know, uh, go to M&M every week, but then don't talk about their money. No one's going to care about your money as much as you. It's like your patient. No one is going to love your patient as much as you. Give your patient your money almost as much time as you give your patient. And we don't do that, unfortunately. Um. No, I, we have two uh, physicians on the panel, Dr. Kane and Dr. Coyne, who both have experience with um, intellectual property and devices. So, uh, you know, it's, you're always within an academic setting when you're a trainee. Uh, how do you evolve your own idea? Uh, still respecting your responsibility to your institution, and and what does this mean in terms of money? I Dr. mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, as a trainee, you know, it's 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 interesting. Like you said, you have to you have to learn a lot about how these things are structured in an academic environment, right? And, you know, we, we, we all kind of have to play that game. So it's just something you have to learn. Um, if, if you're doing research and coming up with, you know, ideas that turn into patents and things that you want to spin out into a company, uh, a, a lot of that 
you know, does go back to the university, but, you know, you, you will get a certain percentage as a royalty on those. I'm going to limit this discussion to finance um, for tonight because we can have hours long discussions about this, but, but, but you will be given some sort of royalty, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30%, depending on what university you work for and what kind of deal you work out with them. Uh, when you actually, but, but what you, you will find out is that uh, in the current uh, biotechnology landscape, uh, you know, a big company like Medtronic or Covidian or, or Edwards, they're not just going to license your intellectual property and you're just going to sit back and make millions. Typically, you're going to have to put some work into commercializing it. And for that, you know, that's where you operationalize a startup company in terms of an LLC or both of mine end up being C-Corps. That, that, that completely depends on how you're going to raise money and what rate you're going to raise money and from whom. It's kind of beyond the scope, but um, you know I'm involved with both of those. I serve on the boards. I have stock stocks, additional stock options, and that's that adds layers of complexity. The main thing is everyone has to know what's going on, right? You have to be very clear with your university, very clear with your employer on the conflicts, so you can get a conflict management plan in place, and you know all the research dollars versus all the commercial dollars are are accounted for. Uh, but but for me personally and, and my financial goals. You know, I have to make certain changes on my tax declarations. I have to know how I receive a consultancy fee, how that's taxed, how that's viewed in terms of my overall financial plan and the effects of that. And, and you know, that's just kind of what I talked about earlier. These are just kind of layering complexities most or a lot of physicians will have as they go through their career. And it just requires more calls to my, my financial planner and the addition to, you know, getting to know my, uh, my corporate lawyer a little bit more but you know you, you build that team around those aspects too and, and it's you know it's really fun i mean i you know i don't think any i think all three of us do it and we wouldn't if it wasn't fun uh but you know it's also very it can be you know a lucrative way to add income to your your financial plan and uh you know i'm at the beginning so right now i have a lot of paper that says i <laughs> of a lot of stocks and companies they're not worth anything um but but someday hopefully they will be and and uh, you know there there are moves you have to make to protect yourself so when that money comes in you know you're not paying a 30 40 percent tax bill um but you learn about how to layer in that as you go along and you you talk to your lawyers you talk to your financial planners you talk to other people who've done it i mean call one of the three of us up i mean we'll 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 tell you what we know um, but mentorship is important in these aspects too. And as Dr. Sofolio and Dr. Kane had said, there's not nearly enough mentorship in these areas uh, within our field. And I think that's why we're all here tonight. So. And Dr. Kane, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with industry partners and how to forge that uh, safely uh, in terms of finances? Uh, so, you know, I've had a couple of different point of views from it. Um, one from being on the executive committee of the WTF or the Women in Thoracic Surgery and working very closely with industry to get them to support different scholarships or different educational um, opportunities that we have. And I think that often as a trainee, you know, especially with the Sunshine Act and all the different things, you get really nervous about um, trusting uh, industry and also, you get, at least I did, I got told that you can't trust any other studies because they're all biased. And I think 
you know, yes, they're probably biased, but as long as you understand what those biases are, they're not evil. Um, and so I think getting to know the industry um, people that you are around, getting to know what that company's uh, missions or drives are and see if you can't align something that you're working on um, or working with, with them and ha have them help support. And they're, they're really willing and able to do that. So I, I wouldn't shy away from that. I would definitely um, foster relationships with industry and seeing if they can't, if your missions align with theirs and if they can't help you with that. Um, as far as when you're up there at the podium, giving your talks and stuff, you know, you have to do your disclosures, but I don't think it necessarily means there's a major conflict of interest. Yeah, I, I just I just want to hit on that because no one had more conflict of interest slides than me. I think I had nine. And uh, I love when people tried to make me feel bad. I always said, hey, listen, bro, you work a little harder, get a little smarter, and then people will pay you money for your opinion. And that would shut them up. Because at the end of the day, you can all have great ideas and opinions. We're all so busy, none of us have time to get the message out there and to influence the world and make an impact on the world without industry. So they're not the evil empire. The evil empire is us being stuck in the operating room all day. The only way to get your ideas out there is to have a platform with industry. You partner with them in an honest, transparent, accountable way and let the jealous people in the audience say whatever they want. Fly home on your private jet and do a great job for your patients. Do a great job for your partners. Be a great doctor and be honest and just ignore the noise because that's what it is. It's really just jealousy. So don't let anyone tell you that. If you don't have conflict of interest, you can't get your ideas out and make an impact on the world. At the end of the day, how many people we help is the only way I think we're measured when we go to our grave. I think, I think just to, just to finish, you know, a couple of years ago, the president of AETS, you know, Shaf Kashaji was, I mean, I mean, he, he does this, this is his thing. Right. So I think, I think we're finally making some inroads into the fact that partnering with these people and, and sometimes being these people as, as somebody who's running a startup is, 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 is a good way to improve patient outcomes and, you know, get, get your ideas in, into the places that matter, which is at the bedsides. Kind of a different, different uh, take on translational yeah. research, right? You're yeah. actually taking the ideas yeah. and putting them into action. Yeah. Um, and industry is a great way to partner with that. And I heard critics in the audience about him and I turned around and said, listen, yeah. this guy has forgotten more than I've ever learned or probably you, <laughs> so let's listen to him. But they were criticizing him about this. So this is this inherent bias yeah. Yeah. that you as a doctor have to get over and realize industry is helping you. Money is not a bad thing, it's a great thing and empowers you to make other people's lives better. Don't yeah. be ashamed if you make a lot of it, right. do something good with it. My, my, my company's employed 10 people right now. I mean- There you go. There I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I, you know, that positively affects the, the economy. I mean, Dr. Kane, you, you, you work for a company that employed a lot more than that. I mean, you know, th these are things that matter to the world. So I think it's a good thing we're talking about. them. Congratulations to you. It's great. So from a residence standpoint, if you're not kind of at the point where you are practicing and you have a lot of these ideas and you're seeing concrete 
places where we can improve patient care. How do residents get involved with industry? How do you start those partnerships? And are there, if, if it's not industry, are there other uh, resources for passive income? That's a, that's a buzzword that everyone hears in training. Are there other um, side hustles, passive income that residents should be considering? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, a uh, couple questions there. I, I mean, we, we probably should move on from from our, our, our pro industry portion of the talk. Um, but but yeah, functionally, you know, you just have to meet people getting into this type of world is all about, you know, meeting, networking, figuring out who, who the players are in your area as far as who can provide financing for those ideas. These ideas aren't funded by the NIH unless, you know, if you get an SBIR or an STTR or something like that, that can start it. But at some point you have to take them out of the university and you have to get to know venture capitalists, angel investors, um, other sources of income. And that takes getting out of the, the academic building and meeting these people. My LinkedIn looks quite different than it did five years ago before I started this journey. And, and, and I think that's part of the process. So, so getting out of your comfort zone, meeting with engineers, meeting with project managers, meeting people who work for the FDA as a desk job. I, I mean, the, you know, learning who all is involved in the process is important. Now to the other half of your question, which I think kind of make, bring us back to this the financial stuff, the side gigs and, you know, how else can I get a little bit extra money while I'm a resident, right? That's, that's what this kind of, once you're an attending, you don't, you don't need a ton of side gigs. You don't need to drive an Uber uh, on an attending salary, but, but, but as a resident, let's face it. I mean, you know, like I said, if you're in New York city or, or a high cost of living area and you, you got a couple kids to feed, well, how can you do this? Well, the easiest thing is to set something up like a high yield savings account. Right. So, so if you're going to have, you know, if you, if you have your money in a brick and mortar bank and you have your checking account and you're looking for the first smart thing to do to is get get a savings account that doesn't pay 0.04% on your on your on your money right so there's a you know hundreds of different options on kind of your online or a high yield i'm not going to i'm not a brand guy i'm not going to tell you what to do i have my preferences but you know you can get 4 or 5% on your money right now. And if you're not getting that, you, that's the easiest thing you can do. It, it, you just go online, you fill out a form and you transfer money in the next day and, and, and you're making so you're, you're making money on money, right? So your high yield, your, 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 your savings, uh, your emergency fund should be in a separate high yield savings account. That that's step one. That's passive income. That's money making money. Uh, you know, that what, how else can money make money? Well, well, you know, the simple fact of having dividends or, or, or whatnot from your stocks, right? So if you're going to, if you're going to invest it, pick your investment in your 401k or your 403b, your, your retirement account, you know, you can, you can pick, you can pick a bunch of different things. Uh, and some of those can provide dividends, right? So if you own a stock every, every, Every three or four months, the company reports earnings and they will pay that out as a dividend. It might be like six cents a share on a 30 or $40 share. And that's fine, but that adds up over time. So that's passive income, that may be one to 2%. And you can do that in your own taxable private investment account too. And that's money making money. That's, that's passive income. Real estate's the one everyone talks about. You're probably not going to be a real estate mogul as a resident, um, but you can own real estate investment trusts. 
um, you know, the, the ETF version of owning real estate, and that can pay dividends as well. Uh, uh, and then, of course, you get... I just want to comment right now with the interest rate, REITs are getting killed, so be, be careful. Yeah, don't do that. Today. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. Yeah. And, you know, you, you have to learn about the bond markets and real estate before you, before you go for them. I agree with that. Um, but then you have actual side gigs, right? So we all, we're all, you know, we, we all did okay in school and we made a few smart choices along the way. You know, you probably have skills that could be marketable, right? You might be able to tutor the MCAT or you might be able to tutor step one and, and things like that. You might, you might be a writer. You might, you might write great blogs and great content. Those can be monetized fairly easily today. As long as you have a good following, a good readership, you, you can monetize those. You can, you know, write, write a textbook. Don't write a textbook. That, yeah. that sounds like a terrible idea, yeah, but, but those, the, yeah. You don't, you don't get paid. but I would say also medical legal work. And, and you know, yeah. talking for companies that you believe yeah. in, and they'll pay you for your time, and they'll pay you sure. an enormous amount of money for your time if you're honest and you're able to speak well and you're able to yeah. innovate a little bit. But um, you know, yeah. what you mentioned is passive income. The only thing I would say is too many doctors have their money in saving. They should be in the market. You're in it for a long time. It's a better place yeah. unless your tax rate is super, super high and you're getting after taxes seven or eight yeah. percent. But the side gigs are medical legal work talking to companies, if you believe in a product and you're using it, doing that, and you have to disclose all this. We have fired, when I was an executive VP here, we were firing a doctor a month because they were not honest or transparent. I'm like, why would you put your $2 million a year salary at risk for a check for 10 grand from company X? Don't risk the big check for the little check. Be smart, be honest, declare it, tell everybody about it, and then do it in a way that's honest and authentic with integrity because you believe in the product, not because they're paying you to say you believe in the product. So I always went the other way. I would, there was, there was products that I used that I knew was better. I would go to their booth, ask them what they were doing. And sometimes early in my career, they would pay me to speak for them because I was talking about what I believed. Great. Thank you. Um, there's one question from the Q&A. Um, are target date retirement funds a good option for early career surgeons that are busy and or inexperienced in finance? Maybe Jeff or Tyler can comment on that. Go for it, Tyler. Yeah, so if you want to do it yourself, be involved, target date funds, I think personally are great. Reason being is it depends on which ones you choose. If you look at the expenses of them, a lot of them are very expensive. Some of them are very inexpensive. Um, Dr. Coyne, I know you didn't like to throw out names. I'll throw out Vanguard as an example. Vanguard is, in general, pretty inexpensive in terms of their annual operating expenses of their mutual funds. So if you look at a target date fund for, from Vanguard, you can get that very inexpensive. Um, you can toss your money in there while you do your research, learn, and you can make changes as you go along and you, the more you learn. Uh, but it's a good place to start just because you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about picking different funds, having them overlap, racking up charges. You don't have to worry about that. So you can throw it all into a target date fund, um, call it a day, keep doing your research and learning. I really hope that everyone's listening to Tyler because he has mentioned fees. Dot, you know, you think, oh, it's just 1%. That's gigantic. Index funds, no feeds. When you hear the word load, load, L-O-A-D, get the hell out of your chair and run out. Any month they want to load in or a loan out, you tell them they can shove that load somewhere that you can see when you do your next colonoscopy. Don't, they are using your hard work and your money 
for them to go ahead and join another country club. Don't do it. You work too hard for it. You're going to do just as well in an index fund and really look at the costs down to every penny. If you do that early in your 30s, it'll make millions of dollars of difference when you're my age. I'm 60. And from a cost standpoint, to Tyler's point, there are some targeted funds out there as part of an employer retirement plan that could be on the higher end from a fee structure standpoint. Click the box, the easy button says, hey, I'm good to go. But then when you look at the individual options, you actually might come to find that, wait a minute, I've got one fund company for my target date funds charging something high, but then there is that Vanguard 500 index and a mid cap and a small cap and a global fund. And then you realize, okay, if I spend a little bit of time here or find that team to consult you through the process so they can identify the opportunities for you, you might be able to create that target date fund on your own from the individual options inside your retirement plan through work, rather than just selecting the one box that says, give me the 2060. Yeah. You've got people around you and can do research to look at those underlying costs underneath. It might be worth spending a little bit of extra time up front to ensure that your costs are being managed appropriately. Should you find more expensive target date funds in your bevy of investment options? And, and Jeff, can I piggyback on that with the 529? This is a perfect example. Yep. If you put your money in a 529, as your child gets older, they all of a sudden start taking it more out of stock and they get very conservative. They think you're going to be paying a college tuition when many of us use the 529 really as a generational skipping trust. So unless you're looking at the details, your money is earning less and less. It's a little greater risk, but it's coming out of the market, going to bonds. Don't do that. Again, look at it carefully. Don't just sit it there and let it go on autopilot. Look at it and say, hey, I'm never going to use this for my kid's college and keep it all in the market. It's growing tax-free, tax-deferred over 30, 40 years and use it for your kids' kids or et cetera. So that's an example of really looking at this autopilot and making decisions just very clearly, as I think Jeff has said so well. And I think I can piggyback on that one, Dr. Sherfolio, from looking at the details, not only from an account structure, but from an administration standpoint. You mentioned 529s with the new SECURE Act that's been passed. There's now language in there. We can say the disclosure, things can change in the time period ahead. But currently, they did include language in there that says, hey, if a 529 has been around for at least 15 years, then the beneficiary, you can move dollars out of the account into a Roth IRA for the beneficiary. And then that can grow for them for a much longer time period and be used tax-free outside of just qualified education expenses. Fantastic. So understanding those even details from a you know, tax law administration standpoint and not just the you know, structure of the underlying investments, that is important to be considerate of the entire time you have an account because there will likely be future rules and laws passed that may affect what you've been building as an investment portfolio up until that point. It's a great, the only thing I would say, then it goes out of your estate and it goes into the beneficiary. Now it's their money instead of your money. Right. If you want to use that money to go take a cooking class in Italy, you can. Once you roll it over to your kid's broth, it's theirs and you're screwed. It's no longer yours. So make sure you want to give it to that kid. That's all. <laughs> you may not need to tell the kid about the Roth IRA though until they completely pan out. That's correct. You know, I just forgot about it, Your Honor. I forgot we moved <laughs> the money. That's correct.
I wanted to ask you about uh, about disability. So um, I don't know if uh, perhaps Dr. Kane, uh, if you have any experience in, or even a personal experience about how do you manage those questions? I remember when I got my first uh, contract, they had this thick packet, it talked about dismemberment, it talked about death and uh, how do you distill this down into some basic principles for trainees to understand disability and what what you're assessing? Uh, hopefully I can answer that question for you. I think it's really important when you're looking at disability insurance um, to make sure that it is very specialized specific. So you want to make sure that if you have come have an accident or have a condition that you can no longer do thoracic surgery or congenital heart surgery or whatnot, that you can file for disability for that, but still be able to work in a different capacity. I, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that you have to make sure that it is going to support what your specific field as a physician is, not just the generic one. Um, but you know, it's, I've, I've had several friends, I had a, um, a colleague who is a, a urologist who had, dis you know, had disability insurance and one day was doing something in his attic and something broke and it split all of his, you know, tendons on his hands. So he can no longer be a surgeon. He could still intellectually do things and he could still do, uh, earn money, but he was able to get his disability um, insurance to pay because he was no longer able to operate as what his career was. So I think just being very specific with what kind of disability you get um, can actually help you along, even if you can still work in some capacity. Tyler, can you just touch on briefly the GSI plans that might be available for residents, how to find out about that? And then who, who do you ask about a disability policy in residency? Yeah, so when you traditionally go and get your own disability insurance, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. Uh, if we look back maybe five years ago, you had to go through even a medical exam where an examiner would come out, they'd take your height, your weight, your blood pressure, they'd take even urine and blood specimen. Um, all that goes off to the insurance company, you answer health questionnaires, they check medical records from your doctors, uh, they will even do prescription drug checks. So they'll do a database check, see which prescriptions have been prescribed in your name. Even if you're not taking it, you didn't need it, it's going to pop up. It's going to raise questions from the insurance company standpoint. So I tell everybody, any little thing in your medical history can potentially cause a problem when getting disability insurance. Today, insurance companies don't always require the medical exam, but they will still require a, a history of your medical health. So they'll do either a online questionnaire or they'll do a telephone interview and they will screen going back five years, 10 years, um, ask you all about your doctor visits. Have you ever had this, 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 or this? They'll list out a hundred different things. Um, then they will go out to your doctors, request medical records, any little thing in there, they'll come back, typically ask more questions. If you have stubbed your toe a year ago, 
there is, and you let's say you broke your toe, the insurance company is going to put an exclusion on your toe because they don't want to cover it. Uh, and when I say any little thing, I really mean any little thing. It's like any other type of insurance. You have to get it before anything happens to you because once something happens to you, the insurance company looks at it and says, there's a pre-existing risk there. We will cover everything else, but we will not cover that. So if you had back spasms, you get disability insurance, but they're going to put an exclusion on your back. So now if you can't operate anymore, you can't bend over, you can't work your instruments because of your back, they're not going to cover you. Um, so it's important to make sure you get insurance while you're healthy. Uh, a lot of residency programs, as Anna had mentioned, have what's called the GSI plan, stands for Guarantee Standard Issue. All it means is you get the same policy, same resident discounts, um, everything is exactly the same. You get to skip the medical screening. So if you have any sort of pre-existing condition, uh, it essentially does not matter in the case of a GSI plan. Uh, you get the same policy, medical screening is waived. Uh, the only way insurance companies are able to offer that is what the insurance companies refer to as the law of large numbers. The bigger the pool of people, they are worried about offsetting what's called adverse selection. So if you had 10 people in a residency program, they're not going to give a GSI plan because they're worried about, you know, if a couple people out of there have pre-existing conditions, they're going to be on the hook for a ton of claims down the line. But if you have a thousand people, 1500 people, they know they're getting some unhealthy people with pre-existing conditions, but they're also getting healthy people who, even if they went through the medical screening, they'd still get a policy anyway. So they're helping to offset the adverse selection. So if you have any pre-existing conditions, um, even what I see for a lot of residents is stress, anxiety, depression. If any of that shows up anywhere in your medical records, uh, it's going to be a problem. Insurance companies are stuck from 20 years ago. They haven't been updated with the times. Everybody's stressed out. Uh, so, you know, if that comes up, insurance companies don't like it. They're going to restrict your benefits, they could raise your rates, or they could flat out decline to offer you a policy. And a lot of times when you are declined, when you go through that medical screening process and you are declined for a policy, depending on the GSI plan that's available to you, you may no longer be eligible for it. So you wanna be honest upfront with whoever you're working with and discuss any pre-existing conditions up front. Um, so if somebody told me about a pre-existing condition, that's between me and you. It does not go to the insurance company. The only time any of this information goes to the insurance company is when you specifically provide it to them and sign the application. Um, so I always like to talk these things through. Uh, if there is a GSI program, the best place to start is typically go to your GME office, ask them who handles your disability benefits as a resident, and that's most likely going to be the same people that offers you a GSI plan. Um, if not, you can always reach out to somebody. Um, you know, we can get lists of which insurance companies offer GSI plans at the various hospitals. So it's typically easy for us to find that out. Um, but the best place to start if you aren't sure as who handles the disability insurance at your training program is to go to GME and ask. Now, I have a, I, I have a, a comment and a question about it. I, I feel very strongly about this. If, if it, the best time to get disability insurance is, is now or yesterday, if you are a trainee, because a couple of different things. One, uh, once you go through, if, if 
you go through medical underwriting and you get your nice, your healthy person who goes under medical underwriting and you get a future benefit increase writer on your policy, you know, you may, you may add on additional coverage 10, 15 years from now based on your exam as a 29 year old healthy human. Uh, so, so, you know, there's significant benefits to getting this policy, lo- a good policy locked in early. Um, it's expensive. It's the most expensive insurance you're going to buy, but it's also could potentially provide you with the most benefit and the best protection that you would ever need uh, during your life, let alone career. Um, but my question for Tyler and Jeff, so so I, I looked at our GSI policies and I had already gotten what I thought was a very medically underwritten policy and 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 it and when I compared line by line and costs I came out ahead because I happened to be pretty healthy when I got my medically underwritten policy so so do you guys have your clients go through medical underwriting if you if you think there's a chance they're going to beat the GSI policies they, or have you seen that a lot it really depends so when you look at a GSI policy compared to other policies um, and let me just specify, a GSI policy is not a specific type of policy. It is just an insurance policy that the company offers on a GSI basis. It's the same policy that your friend at a different teaching hospital would get, but because you are at your teaching hospital, you get to skip the medical screening. So when you're comparing the policies from company to company, if you want this policy versus that policy, check to see if this policy is offered on a GSI basis. If it is, then there's no point in providing your medical information to an insurance company just for a potential problem to come up. If you want this other policy that is not offered on a GSI basis, then talk it through, make sure there's no pre-existing conditions, things like that. Um, But it really just comes down to which policy you want. So if you want the GSI policy, if that's the policy that you like the most, the way it's structured, the benefits that are being offered, go through the GSI plan. Uh, but you need to compare all of the options and then decide on whether you, which policy you want and then see if that policy is offered on a GSI basis. I would echo the same exact thing. You know, hopefully you're working with an industry professional who's familiar with the different disability insurance carriers that you somebody could go through full underwriting for, compare those features, contract languages, policy structures to what the GSI plan is, and then just talk through what the individual applying is most comfortable with. If that ends up being the GSI plan, great. If somebody wants to forego the GSI plan in favor of some different better features in their opinion on a fully underwritten policy in their okay with the quote-unquote risk of going through underwriting and having something pop up it's a little bit of their choice to make but having that information up front is what you want to be discussing first and not just go in blindly oh i'm just going to do this i'm just going to do that uh, the other thing that i would comment from a medical history standpoint and disability insurance and carrier insurance carriers in general there is even a, a step before uh going through a application either fully underwritten or getting a gsi plan If you're talking with somebody like myself, Tyler, or any other financial professional that's familiar with the disability insurance space, if you're at a program that doesn't offer a GSI plan, but you disclose to me that there is some level of a pre-existing condition, we can take information from you. You can write a statement. I can send you a questionnaire on that specific health history that you have. 
I can anonymize it for you and I can submit it to the carriers that offer own occupation disability insurance and say, you know, here's John or Jane Doe. This is in the medical file. How are you going to view this situation? No name is tied to anything from an MIB medical insurance bureau standpoint. You're just gathering information from all the carriers up front because some carriers might come back and say, this is a serious issue. No way. Others might say, eh, not a problem for us. You know, on the, on the surface, every single feature is available. But you can at least take that step backwards if there are items in the health history that you're concerned with and do kind of a pre-inquiry per se. And so that way you have more information to go off to determine, okay, when I do formally apply, now you know going into kind of what's expected from a cost and feature standpoint. You might see an estimate that's like, no way I want this. This doesn't make sense to spend time on because it's so chopped down or I'd get declined altogether. You could go to the other end, though, and find out that just because it's in the medical history on the surface, there's not a whole bunch of issues at first. So you might be able to secure that fully underwritten policy if you're at a program that doesn't offer a GSI. You can do homework up front, per se. This is a, a very relevant question and problem because there's recent evidence from um, Dr. Yang that showed cardiothoracic surgeons in particular suffer from uh, cervical injury. Uh, cervical neck injuries and musculoskeletal problems throughout our careers. And so it's something that we have to plan for uh, going forward. Um, Dr. Olds, uh, our time is running short. Do you have any last questions for the group? Um, so the last question I would have is just in terms of more resources that we can give trainees, where to find this information? How do you find a good financial planner? Um, maybe Jeff or um, Tyler or even Garrett can talk about that in training. Um, how do you find somebody who can help you with this? We said start with the GME office for disability insurance. We said there, you know, there's obviously the white coat investor. You can do your own homework, but how do you find somebody who can help you with all of this in training? Internet is going to be, you know, typically where people go first and foremost, uh, as far as yes, white coat investor, there's other blogs. You can just Google, you know, financial planners that specialize in XYZ in you know, my area. Any number of things is going to pop up. Uh, if you're thinking that question, there are other people in your circle that are thinking that same thing. So crowdsource ideas together. Have you talked to anybody? Have you talked to anybody? There's probably at least a few names that within the you know circle of folks at one program or residency training program can drum up. Start there. Um, and then see where uh, that can take you. Sometimes through retirement plans, you know, they offer financial planning services. So that could be another place to go uh, as far as kind of swimming up the ladder a little bit, just find a starting point. But internet searching, talking to people to find that resource is a big one. And then, you know, certainly uh, blogs um, as well. Yeah, I agree with Jeff. And, and kind of going back to what Dr. Serfolio originally mentioned, it has to be somebody that you trust. So you're going to spend time with that person, you're going to be talking to that person, and it ultimately is going to revolve around your money. And no one's going to care about your more, money more than you do. It has to be somebody that you trust. If you're talking with someone and you don't click with that person, you have different viewpoints, go to a different financial advisor. Um, there's a million and one ways to invest. I'll invest one way for the clients that you know appreciate this one way we do it. There's a million other ways to do it. So you need to find somebody that you are aligned with, with essentially it's your money. 
So um, I just wanted to go over some take-home points that we learned from today. Uh, we talked about building a team, and that team consists of uh, financial planners, uh, attorneys, uh, people to help with taxes, and also your family. That's the financial team. And then to move forward with uh, an assessment, a thorough assessment of assets, liabilities, incomes, expenditures, and uh, and then it gets very personalized where you have to do your own research uh, to move to the next step. But this is a great start. I would just like to add one thing because I think it was relevant back when I was a resident and it's still relevant today. If you are struggling with any mental health issues, do not avoid being a psychiatrist or getting treatment just because you're going to have to say that you did so on your disability insurance. You will not be prevented from having it. You may end up paying a tiny bit more for it or have to find, you know, look around for a policy, but please do not avoid getting treatment and help when you need it just because you don't want to have to say it on your disability that's a big thing and also something that the TSRA is interested in um, further exploring. So stay tuned on that topic. Um, thank you everybody for being here. Thank you to our panelists. This was a great discussion. I think everybody will have gained a lot from this. Um, because there's so much to talk about, we are actually planning on a personal finance webinar number two. Um, this will deal more with kind of later issues such as paying back student loans, uh, buying a house, what are the options for physicians, how do you negotiate a contract. Um, so stay tuned for that. That will be uh, within the next couple of months and we will send out um, a notification for that. I also want to uh, pull this up again, um, just so that we have this in the recording. So this uh, webinar is recorded and it will be posted to the TSRA web app. Um, it will also be posted as an audio podcast um, and also to the TSRA YouTube. So um, just so that everyone has this here, if you wanna take a picture of it, these are everybody's email addresses. Um, and again, this will be posted. So thank you so much, everyone. And um, I hope you have a lovely night. Thank, Thank you, everyone. You. Thank, Thank you, Anna, for setting this all up. Thank you for organizing. Everybody's time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.